dwelt among us who lived and died and rose. And so we pray that you would enable us to see him, our Lord Jesus, in all of this, that we might know him and believe. Please work in us by your grace and your power. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, please, to 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to read through verse 20. I indicated in the bulletin only through verse 11, but through verse 20. The whole chapter is helpful, but we'll just go that far in our reading. Now please, hear the word of God. Now I would remind you, brothers of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If indeed we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. I began this morning with that hymn that I think we've been beginning Easter Sundays with for, I don't know, maybe always. I don't know if to look back, but a long time. Christ the Lord is risen today. That is the great affirmation, the great declaration of the scripture. It's the great declaration of the church. I trust it's yours. We, Christians, have been making that declaration since the very beginning we affirmed in that ancient creed this morning that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate that he was dead and buried and descended into hell and he rose again on the third day that that affirmation uh, this scripture this morning more powerful more authoritative than that creed of course written by the apostle the very word of God he writes that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture He was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture, and he appeared. 
And so, again, that affirmation. He was raised and he appeared. In fact, we've been making this affirmation, this declaration, ever since the woman met the angel at the tomb, when the angel said, I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified, that he is not here. He is risen, just as he said. So ever since then, they made their declaration. We've been declaring this very truth that Jesus has risen. There's something about resurrection that resonates with us. Because there's something about death. No matter how much we want to avoid it, no matter whatever we do to escape it, no matter whatever we do to put it out of our minds, we find it's unavoidable, inescapable. And if you open your eyes, it's before you. I think it was Woody Allen, if I might stoop there. (laughs) But I think it was Woody Allen, one of his films, who expressed the sentiment of human beings about death when he said, I'm not afraid to die, I just don't want to be there when it happens. Right? I mean, that's the sense of it, isn't it? As long as I'm not thinking, as long as I have to be there, then, oh, it'd be fine. But it is real, you see. And so resurrection then resonates with us. And the declaration of the church, the declaration of Christianity, the declaration of the scripture, is that Christ triumphed over death. He defeated it. Oh, we still die, but it's a defeated enemy, if you will. An enemy, yes, but defeated one. And so it has no ultimate hold over us. So this idea of resurrection uh, resonates with us. In fact, the resurrection of Jesus is the linchpin of Christianity. We take it out, everything falls apart. It's that crucial to us that he died. And indeed, uh, he rose. It's the climax of all the gospel accounts, you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, building and building and building until not simply the crucifixion of Jesus, but his resurrection and ultimate ascension. But this sense of resurrection. Uh, in the book of Acts, it begins with, 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 with Jesus, the risen Jesus, with his disciples, sharing with them about life to come. And after he's ascended, the words on their lips on the day of Pentecost, Peter says, this Jesus whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. From that point on, that has been the declaration, that has been the sermon really of the church that Jesus has died, but been resurrected. Just soon after that, Peter and John, Luke tells us, as he writes about this early history of the church, Luke tells us that upon their lips was simply this, Jesus Christ and him crucified. I read this morning from Acts chapter 10, when the gospel made it to the household of Cornelius, this Gentile, so from Jerusalem into this notion, these Gentiles receiving this word, what was the message that Christ died? Yes, but that he rose and appeared to us, not everyone, but to us who were called, who were elected, who were chosen, if you will, by God, to be witnesses who ate and drank with Jesus after He rose. The Apostle Paul's life was changed, of course, transformed by meeting this risen Christ. And as Paul then went out to preach, what did he preach? He preached Christ crucified, yes, but Christ risen, in fact. When he went to Athens, the philosophers of the city called Paul a babbler. Why? Because they said all he's talking about 
is Jesus Christ and the resurrection. You see, that's been it. We read through the epistles. We find the linchpin of our faith, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thus Paul here, as he summarizes for us the gospel. He says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand by, which you're being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. And verse 11, he says, whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believe. This is what's been handed down by the apostles, that he died, was buried, was raised, and then indeed appeared. Fact, you see. If Christ hasn't been raised then we're to be pitied, according to the apostle. Christ hasn't been raised. And then, of course, as he puts it, their preaching is in vain. As he puts it, your faith is in vain. As he puts it, they've been misrepresenting God as apostles because they were saying that God raised them from the dead. But if he didn't, then they're liars, really, or fools. And, and then he said, thus, if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is futile. It's empty. It means nothing. He says, you're still in your sins, therefore. If he hasn't been raised, you're still in your sins. And those who have died, they've perished. And if we have hope only in this life, then really the world should pity us for following after this dead Messiah, who thus is no Messiah at all, no deliverer, no Christ at all. Now, as we consider these things this morning, I want to to, to take... Uh, an outline from an Anglican pastor theologian now deceased John Stott when he approaches these, this passage he, he comes up with this he says what we want to consider first is what is the meaning of resurrection that's a question of definition what is the meaning of resurrection what do we mean when we say that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. What do we mean by that? Then secondly, this. Is it reasonable to believe that this actually took place? That's a question of history. And then thirdly, if indeed it did take place, does it have any meaning for us? Thus a question of significance. First, a definition. What do we mean when we say that Christ has risen from the dead? It's a fantastic statement if you think about it. I mean, really think about it. I mean, we get accustomed, I get accustomed, and it's a good thing to get accustomed to, this idea that Jesus was raised from the dead. But, like, when's the last time you saw that? When's the last time you heard of that, you see? I remember once in a theology class in seminary, my professor was just sort of playing games with us. And so he said... Define resurrection and give two examples. <laughs> right? He made his points. When we talk about the resurrection of Jesus, we're not talking about the resuscitation of a corpse. We're not simply talking about sort of bringing him back to this life. In, in Jesus' ministry, there are three occasions when those who were dead were brought back to life. The, the daughter of Jairus, you might remember, the son of the widow of Nain, and then, of course, the famous one, Lazarus. But you see, all of them were brought back to this life 
in that body. In fact, in considering the raising, if you will, of Lazarus, C.S. Lewis was known to quip that we should feel sympathy for these ones because they would have to go through their dying all over again. See, the resurrection of Jesus wasn't like that. He wasn't resurrected to his old body. Now, it was recognizable. They knew this was Jesus. But it was a new, different body. It was a new body, imperishable, incorruptible. It was a body that would be fit for a new existence. Fit, if you will, for glory. Fit for that who he was, if you will, as the resurrected Christ. It wasn't that same old body. It was a body that could go through grave clothes without disturbing them. It was a body that could go through a tomb with a big rock over it. It was a body that could appear and disappear and all of that. And at the same time, a real body where he ate and drank and was seen and was touched. So, But it was a different body, a new body. He was raised to a new, if you will, sense of existence, a body built for, fit for, glory. Not only that, when we speak of resurrection of Jesus, it isn't just, as we mentioned, that he was brought back to life, that in some sense he lives. Well, of course he does. But that isn't the point of resurrection. Resurrection always has to do with body. It always has to do with his body. The evangelist of a previous generation, D.L. Moody, Uh, was quoted once to say, a day will come when you will read that Moody is dead. Don't you believe it? I'll be more alive on that day than I am today. Now there's a sense in which that was true. I mean, he would die and as a believer, he would find himself in the presence of God and thus alive and living. But that isn't resurrection. Because there was no talk of body at that point. He's simply alive as we all will be when we die and we'll go and be with the Lord. But not resurrection, you see. Resurrection has to do with body. When we speak of the resurrection of Jesus, we're not simply speaking of living on as an influence. Now, certainly Jesus has lived on and he influences, but so do other people. Maybe so do your pets. Influence even after they're even after they're dead, you see. Human beings influence even after they're dead. Sadly, Elvis lives. In that sense. We learned very sadly last week, Hitler lives. More positively, perhaps. You could say that Washington lives and Jefferson lives and, and FDR lives and Martin Luther King lives in some sense. Whoever your heroes are, whoever influences you in a sense from the grave, uh, all that's true. But that's not what we're talking about here. Jesus does influence and powerfully, but that's not the point of resurrection. There's something else unique to resurrection, you see. Because resurrection of Jesus means at a point in time, there was objectively his body made new. His body raised to this newness, if you will, this newness of life. It was real. The way that Paul puts it, he said he, was, he, he, he died, was buried, raised, and appeared. 
Now those four words, died, buried, raised, and appeared, the two most important words are died and raised. Buried is simply proof that he died. We don't bury, at least we're not supposed to, dead, I mean live people, we only bury dead people. So the fact that he died was buried, and you say, well, he was put in a tomb, he wasn't really buried. Well, it's a synonymous concept. They understood themselves buried when in a tomb, down in a tomb. Raised is important. Appeared is just proof that he was raised. So the key concepts here, died, raised, if you will. And he was raised to a new body. And when he was raised with this new body, you see, it wasn't that simply God did a miracle by taking all that was true of his old body and just sort of recomposed it in some way. But this was a new body, again, a new body fit for glory. This was this body of Jesus. This was the first fruit of the new creation. This was the new age, the age that was to come. Infused into the present age. See, during the time of Jesus, many people, many Jews believed in a resurrection from the dead. They simply believed it would happen at the end of the age. What surprised many, as they contemplated this later, was that it happened in Jesus. And yet that wasn't the end of the age. The age is still here. We're still living this out. But there's a sense in which it is the reign of the Messiah, isn't it? The new age in Jesus, the kingdom of God in Jesus has come. How do we know that? Well, we know because he was raised from the dead. A day will come and we'll be raised too. With the body fits for that new age. The new heavens and the new earth. So then the question... Is it reasonable for us to believe this? I won't spend much time here. I think you're guessing I'm going to say yes. Um, And again, this is pretty simple, really. Pretty simple. The point, of course, is that by proofs and so forth and arguments, we can't make people believe. Though some who just simply say, I don't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead because that simply doesn't happen. And in raised from the dead, they don't mean that he isn't alive in some spiritual sense. In fact, sadly, in many churches today, that's the sense that will be preached. Though he's risen in this spiritual sense. But what they mean by that is, I don't believe that he was raised in this bodily sense. I don't believe that. And people will say that. I don't believe it simply can't happen. And there isn't anything you can really do to argue around that very much. Except share with them the truth of the gospel. But there are some reasonableness to this, of course. The tomb must clearly have been empty. Now, this doesn't prove that Jesus rose from the dead, but, but it must clearly have been empty for people to keep going back there and not seeing Jesus. I mean, if it wasn't empty, if Jesus was still there, if the body was still there all bound up, you would think that someone would have opened it up and said, these people are foolish, look. But no one did that. It must have been empty. And so people say, well, maybe the women went to the wrong tomb. Well, that was silly. Because if the women went to the wrong tomb, why would everybody else go to the wrong tomb, right? 
Because somebody did doesn't mean everybody would have. Maybe the, the guards out in front of the real tomb might have said, hey, it's over here. Some said, well, the authorities stole the body of Jesus. Why would they do that and not present it once this Christianity started to rise? Why would they resort to violence rather than just simply showing the body of Jesus or at least saying, we've got it. Some say the disciples of Jesus stole the body. Really? So they knew they had the body of Jesus and they went around and built a whole religion based on the fact that he had risen and then they were willing to die for that and nobody broke ranks? That seems unlikely. Some say the disciples were hallucinating. There was some sort of cognitive dissonance, perhaps, in all of this. But the truth of the matter is, we realize that these disciples never expected Jesus to rise from the dead. They didn't even believe the report of the women. They had to go see for themselves. Really, is it really true? Peter had to go stick his head in the tomb to make sure it was true. They weren't expecting this. They weren't thinking it so, so much that it took over their brains and their thoughts. And, and a hallucination, Really? Paul says that 500 at one time saw Jesus. I mean, that's a group hallucination that was never reported in the 60s. I mean, that's pretty remarkable. And that's the thing, too, isn't it, about the appearances of Jesus. Not simply the disappearance of the body, but the appearances of Jesus. The appearances of Jesus chronicled in the gospels but then spoken about as Paul does here and what's, what, is he, what is he saying he's saying go talk to these people you know these people these people saw him 501 times many of them are still alive go talk to them it hasn't been that far that long since Jesus was purported to have risen so, so go talk to these to these people and what's fascinating here concerning the appearances of Jesus is that the gospel writers actually said that the first people who saw Jesus raised were the women. I mean, women couldn't even testify in courts. No one believed the women. Why would they keep saying it was the women? You would think if it were fabricated in some way, shape, or form, that they'd leave that part out. I mean, that just makes it more difficult for people in their culture in their day to believe these things. But it was true. It was there. It was the women who first went to the tomb. It was the women who first realized that Jesus had risen. Women who first saw him. Women who first reported it. And so, so, so there it is, you see. Right there. And then you see, we have this phenomenon of the emergence of the church through these apostles, these cowards, these ones who couldn't even bear to Watch Jesus crucified, the one who even denied him three times. Hiding in the upper room. Afraid. What was it? What was it that made them to be men who would be willing to go out and not only risk, but give their lives for this very thing? One author put it like this. He said, if we do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus, then we're forced to believe that what did hit the disciples was something other amazing, was some other amazing event in kind of equal force in its electrifying intensity. In other words, if it wasn't this resurrection of Jesus, it had to be something that spectacular that would change them so much. But why would it have to be anything else? Why not what they said it was? They saw the risen Christ. 
The church grew, you see. And over the centuries, it's become international, and here it is. Us, still, even today. And question of significance. Does it really matter? I mean, this event that took place nearly 2,000 years ago, does it really, really have any significance for us today, this morning? Let me put it this way, three categories. Again, I borrow this from John Stott, these categories. The first is that the resurrection of Jesus assures us of the forgiveness of sins. The resurrection of Jesus assures us of the forgiveness of sins. No matter what we may think about sin, whether we like to hear about it or whether we don't, the truth of the matter is that we all understand it. We know there's something wrong with the world. We know there always has been. We know we've studied it. We know we've tried to correct it in various ways. And we know it continues on. And when we look into our own lives, we know there's something wrong with us. We just simply do. We know that we've thought things. We know that we've said things. We know that we've done things of which we're ashamed. We just simply do. That's simply the human experience. To deny that is to deny your guts. To deny what you know really to be true. We simply know it. And we'd like to sweep it under the rug. We'd like to avoid thinking about it. We'd like to rationalize it and say, well, I'm not as bad as everybody else. But there's still something nagging within us that says that doesn't really matter either. Is this still true of me? And so you see, forgiveness is a great gift. Oh, we seek forgiveness from one another from time to time. For offenses made, not always. Some are just simply forgiven. We know we're friends. We love each other. Love covers a multitude of sins, even as the scripture says. But we also know there's things that I've thought. There's things that I've thought about you that you don't even know. And it wouldn't do me any good to tell you. I didn't tell you them. I just thought them. And maybe there's things I've done that you don't even know. No one really knows. Who can forgive those sins? And yet they're in me. They're in you. We understand that. It was interesting in the life of Jesus that he never simply gave people assurance that their sins were forgiven. He forgave them. All I can do on a Sunday morning when we make confession of sin, is afterwards I can read some scripture or say something from scripture that can give assurance that all those who repent of their sins and believe in Jesus are forgiven. I, you, can only give assurance of sins forgiven to those who confess and believe. That's all we can do. 
I can't forgive you for your sins. You can't forgive me for my sins. Oh, oh I can forgive you for something you've done against me. You can forgive something that, 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 I can forgive something you've done against me and you can forgive something that I've done against you, but, but I can't just forgive you. Only God can do that. In fact, the people around Jesus, when he told people their sins were forgiven, the people around Jesus said, well, he's blaspheming. Only God can do that. That's why King David, in his great prayer of confession, that's a great model for us, Psalm 51. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. Now, David had sinned against a lot of people. I mean, just in his sin with Bathsheba, he sinned against her. He sinned against her husband by taking Uriah's, by taking uh, his wife, by lying to him, by having him killed. He sinned against the nation of Israel because of his unfaithfulness as a king. But yet he knows, big picture, bottom line, end of day, he sinned against God. And he must have the forgiveness, must have the forgiveness of God. See, without forgiveness, we really can't look each other in the face. Without forgiveness, we really can't face, we really can't face God. Again, that's why in a worship service, as we're walking through the gospel and we see God and who he is, we, we confess quickly uh, so that we get things cleared up so we can continue on with our worship so we can honestly do it and honestly face God in the midst of a service where we tell him we love him and we tell him we're grateful and we ask for his help. And so if we want to be in his presence, we understand that there's something about us. But the, 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 the point is that it's the resurrection of Jesus that assures us of sins forgiven. And Paul writes, he died for our sins according to the scripture, was buried and raised. That raised means that we can know that our sins are really forgiven. How? Well, when Jesus died, he didn't die for his own sins. He had none. Thus, you see, he would have never had to die. The wages of sin is death. He never sinned. He didn't need to pick up his check. But he picked up ours. We sinned. And thus the Holy One, the unblemished Lamb of God, took upon himself our guilt. And that's why he died. But you see, when he rose, it meant that he had paid for the sins of sinners. And once he had done that, death had no grip on him. Death only could grip Jesus because of sin. But once sin was done with, then he was free. And once free, he was raised. And raised to this new life and this new body. And so when we look at Jesus, we realize that his resurrection was his vindication. That he had done what he said he was going to do. Friday nights at our Good Friday service was mentioning and on the night that Jesus was crucified just looking at the scene how could we know that the guy in the middle cross was dying for the sins of sinners and not his own he looked like every other criminal he looked like the one on his right and the one on his left and all of that how do we know that that happened we only know that that happened because he came back and told us we only know that that happened because when he was raised The father was saying, we're done with their sin. And now you can go. And so you see, 
We believe in the resurrection of Jesus as the assurance of sins forgiven. Not only that. The resurrection of Jesus is the assurance of the power of God. It's the assurance of the power of God. Can you change your own nature? Can you change your nature from one who runs from God to one who runs to God? Can you change your nature from being selfish to being unselfish? Being prideful to being humble? Being cruel to being kind? Can you change your nature from being angry to being patient? From being one who is a liar to being one who is truthful? Can you change your nature? The truth of the matter is God can. And the resurrection of Jesus is proof that he has power to change us. Not only that. The question is can God change, give life to, is he powerful enough to give life to those who are spiritually dead? Can he give spiritual ears to those who are spiritually deaf and cannot hear his word and really respond to it? Can he give spiritual eyes to those who are blind and can't see their own sin and can't see the the work of Christ and can't see the steadfast love of God in him? Can he give new eyes, spiritually speaking, to those who are blind? And the answer, of course, is yes, he can. Notice how the apostle puts it. As he writes to the church in Ephesus and he prays that they're able to see all that Christ has done for them. And he puts it like this, that you may be able to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named Not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He says, this power, this same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that God is sending your way as a believer. Sending your way to work in you. It's the power of God. And then not only that, in chapter 2 he says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You're dead. That is, you couldn't respond to the things of God. What enables people to respond to the things of God? Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved you see it's this it's this work of God his power in us and not only that in 2nd Corinthians in chapter 4 in verse 4 he speaks in their case the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God for what we proclaim is not ourselves but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves, your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who has said that light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts 
to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He said, the two great manifestations of the power of God, creation and the resurrection of Jesus. And he said, that resurrection of Jesus, that power can cause blind eyes to really see. And finally this. The resurrection of Jesus assures us of God's ultimate triumph. Scripture says that right now the earth is groaning. Even the earth says, there's something wrong here. This all needs to be made new. And so the question is, do we have any assurance at all that that's going to happen? Do we have any assurance at all that the earth and us Do we have any assurance that all of that, all of God's creation, will be someday made new, all things put right? And the answer is yes, we do. And the answer is yes, because of the resurrection of Jesus. You see, because when Jesus was raised, God was saying, this is what it will be like. This is what it will be like. There will be a new earth and a new heaven. And you'll be, you'll have bodies fit. For that existence. If you go on and read 1 Corinthians 15. What you'll find is. That we'll have bodies that are incorruptible. We'll have bodies that are imperishable. Because you see when we see the Lord Jesus at his return. Then we'll be raised in that sense. And we'll be like him. Not divine as he is divine. But human as he is. With bodies that are imperishable. That are incorruptible. That are fit for this new existence. And he said when that comes injustice will be gone. And that comes poverty will be gone. And that when that comes, fear will be, will be gone. When that comes, all will be new and reflect the very glory of God. And you can know that because the first fruit of that new creation has appeared. Jesus. Now if you believe that, then the words of the Apostle Peter are for you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. If you believe that, then yours is great and certain hope. Concerning your past, you're forgiven. Concerning your future, you're forgiven. Concerning your present, you're forgiven. Concerning your present, God is powerful to help you in every circumstance and situation, to change you, to transform you, and even to save those you love. And you have great hope for the future. You believe this. Shalom, peace. If you don't, I pray that you do. I pray that you come to it. I pray that the power of God overtakes you. I pray that you see it. I pray that you come to know forgiveness of sins. I pray that you come to know the very power of God. I pray that you come to know this great hope. Well, let's pray. Father, I pray for me, for us. 
that we would know it and believe it, that it, this resurrection of Jesus, would fill us, inform us, transform us, and give us hope. Lord Jesus, we're grateful to you that you humbled yourself, that you emptied yourself, not of your deity, but of the glory that was due to you, and you came to us, and were obedient even to death, death on a cross, that we might live. We give you thanks. Father, we think of life, the difficulties, the distresses, even death that faces us. And so we pray that you would grant to us assurance of forgiveness, assurance of your power, and assurance of your triumph. Father, in the world of injustice and poverty and hatred and violence, especially we pray that even as creation groans, that, Lord Jesus, you would work even now by your Spirit, that we might see even in the life that we live, the new age that is to come. And that you would not tarry, but that you would come. And you would make all things new. Father, in this week we pray for our family promised guests that we may be gracious to them in such a way that they would see your hand, your work, your forgiveness, your power, the hope that you have in Jesus and believe we pray for them we may care for them well. And Father, that that would be a tip of the iceberg for us, that we would declare this gospel, that we would serve in such a way that people would know the truth of it and would know you, Lord Jesus. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. Our response to the benediction is twofold. That is, we will together say, Christ is risen, Christ is risen indeed, and then sing together. Please receive this now as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight. And this through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, Christ is risen, he is risen indeed.